Welcome to the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your co-host, Morgan Wack, and I'm here with the meddlesome Eddie Matthews. How are you doing today, Eddie? Hey. Back at it, you know. Nice. I hate that Andor has the Star Wars stigma around it, because some people just are not Star Wars people. It is the only objection that I've heard that you can't really argue with. And people are like, well, I don't really like Star Wars. You're like, well, it's not really Star Wars. I've tried to convince a few people that hate Star Wars to watch it anyways. I haven't heard back from them, but I would like to hear their thoughts. I mean, Nopi isn't really a Star Wars fan. Um, and she's watched it and liked it. So and it is good for even people outside the uh, the bounds of Star Wars. So there you go. Yeah. Um. It's just a perfect show. Like, I think that the pitch for it is because the Star Wars fans are already in, so you don't have to convince them. It we're talking to the non-Star Wars fans, people who are either antagonistic or ambivalent to Star Wars. But is that like five percent of the population? Maybe. <laughs> the, what I'm realizing with all of this kind of constant stream of Star Wars content, because every because it used to be. You'd have to wait 10 years and then there'd be a movie and then everybody would be talking about Star Wars again. And then in between, there would just be Star Wars references and it would always be the original Star Wars. And it would be looking back at being like, yeah, weren't those movies the best? Isn't Han Solo the coolest, you know? But then recently, it's been every year, every couple of years, there's a movie. So Star Wars is like part of the pop culture conversation constantly. And then now it's like there's a show every three to six months. So I think that the people who didn't like Star Wars before are a small contingent, but are becoming like militant because of all the saturation. That seems fair. I mean, it's the same with the Marvel Universe, right? It's like, because that's together 60% of the blockbusters we get now. And I get that pushback. I totally do. Um, See, the with the Marvel Universe, widely. with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I'm in the anti-camp. I'm like the yeah. militant, like, stop. Like, stop the stream. We're done. I feel like I'm in the camp of the non, like, I, I just don't see it as like a commercial pro or anti. It's more like, is this, like, this is kind of what we have. It's so popular that I don't think, like, even the minority voicing itself is going to win. So I'm, I'm sort of like, okay, I'll go see it if it gets good reviews for each of these things, um, rather than screaming into the void about them ruining or taking away the mid-cinema level movies i will say i'm a huge fan of stuff going straight to streaming i know that's ruining the movie industry but really uh great for my wallet and pretty convenient other than that um i can't say yeah i'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of all the stuff that's being put out in theaters these days but and or on the other hand so let's get into it for people who are not around what do we want to start with do we want to just talk about what the show's about, sort of the wider themes, why it's not necessarily a Star Wars show, what's good about it. And uh, so we, we should warn that this is probably from here on out. If you haven't seen Andor, go watch all the episodes and then come back to the show. Or should we give them the premise and then tell them to leave? Uh, let's give them the premise and then tell them. Okay, don't leave off. <laughs> <laughs> So the premise of Andor um 
if you remember the original Star Wars, I'm talking 1977, Luke Skywalker shoots the laser into the hole in the Death Star and Death Star blows up, right? So nice. the Death Star turns out there were some blueprints, some plans that the Empire put together for that, um, you know, Death Star weapon that the planet destroyer to be even created, right? Like the architecture design and all that. So anyhow, those plans were were stolen and then given to Luke and the rebels so that Luke, so that they could see that there was a hole, you know, a two meter wide hole that Luke could shoot lasers through to blow up the thing in the first place. So they needed the plans and the blueprint and the architecture to even see like, where do I, you know, put my X-Wing and all that. And so those plans were stolen by a small cadre of rebels. And that story was depicted in Rogue One, which um, was, yeah, a big blockbuster, good Star Wars movie, maybe came out six years ago and was a big hit. And so the Rogue One, several of the characters, this is kind of a, a prequel to Rogue One, if you will. So it's like a prequel to a prequel, which I know sounds outrageous and stupid, but stay with us. It's about how do you foment a rebellion? How does a rebellion even get started? Who are the players? How does it get financed? How does it build a coalition of people willing to put their lives on the line? And I think that that's a fascinating uh, question and premise for a, for a Star Wars show or for any show. Yeah, I mean, I don't even think they need to know the the bit about Rogue One to watch the show and enjoy it. I think you essentially, because, I mean, the reason why at least the early Star Wars are so popular in the beginning is because George Lucas modeled them on sort of Jungian archetypes of good and evil. So they're very universal, even though they take place in a galaxy far, far away. And so you really just need to know that there's an overpowering totalitarian dictatorship that wants to rule over everyone. And there are people that want to stand up against it, against the odds. Um, and this is the story of how that could plausibly go down in a more realistic way and not just, um, you know, the idealistic story of a guy with superpowers shooting a laser into a small hole. Do you think it's on purpose that the Empire all has like posh British accents in all the Star Wars? I think. It, it, I think it's because it's filmed in England, but I think that it works very well in that context. Yeah. Yeah, I remember uh, Donald Gleeson. He's in, he was in the new, I don't know, like the reboot of the Star Wars movies in episode seven or whatever. And uh, he was an Irish actor. And then when he got cast uh, to be in Star Wars as like an Empire minion, uh, he was asked about like if his character is a good guy or a bad guy. And I believe he said, well, he's British. So yeah, of course he's bad. <laughs> I think the, the thing that separates it from the classic Star Wars stories, which are about rebellion, but are about a very Hollywoodized romantic version of rebellion where the good guys never really have to make sacrifices and they can always kind of just do the right thing and the rebellion will eventually turn in their favor. That is not this show. This show is kind of 
moniker and as in the dialogue they repeat several times like you have to adopt the tools of your enemy to defeat them and i think that's the luthan which is kind of the main uh character who's the puppet master of the this rebellion unit believes that wholeheartedly and and kind of believes that he has to become the evil which he seeks to destroy um, and I think that's what separates it, certainly within the Star Wars universe, but I think within the kind of modern telling of these good versus evil stories, um, that makes it more than just a Star Wars show and more than just a, a quality television show, but a, just a kind of amazing all around experience. Yeah, I think what is special about Andor is that you get um, you get simultaneous views into the top down and the bottom up. So if you take a and, and if you take an enterprise like a rebellion, you're like, all right, how does a how does a movement like this um, occur? And you're like, well, this show Andor's showing you how you know this small group of senators because the empire, I guess, is a democracy, but kind of like a fake democracy. It's like a, a puppet democracy with the emperor as the authoritarian ruler, but then the senators who think they have some influence. Is that accurate? Yeah, I would say, I mean, people, I'm not an, an expert on the prequels. I think the prequels do a better job explaining the actual political system behind the empire. But it, at this point in time, um, which is like post Republic, it is sort of, yeah, just an empire with like a quasi um kind of representative unit that's more about keeping people in line and isn't really representative of anything related to power yeah so you have kind of a, a small cadre of uh dissenting senators who are still saving face but they're being watched and they know they're being watched so they're kind of um they're not full-on rebels or they're not seen by the empire's full-on rebels but they're under surveillance because the empire suspects something fishy's going on with a couple senators so we follow one of these senators around and she's fundraising for the rebellion and kind of like siphoning money off to luthan who's what they call axis or the empire calls axis he's like the um don't you call him i don't know commander-in-chief of the rebellion but uh more of a spy almost yeah too. yeah um and so he's the person who kind of absorbs all of the uh animosity from everybody he's working with and he's kind of happy to do it in the sense that somebody has to be uh the bad guy for lack of a better term on the rebellion side because he's doing shitty things like sacrificing people who trust him so that the empire is, is thrown off the scent you know yeah i mean he, he said he has an amazing speech that i won't ruin for people who haven't seen it but uh talking about what he's given up and what he sees his kind of peace as being and i think he he sees it as being exactly that, basically a sacrificial lamb that is there to to keep all the pieces in place. Like he, he knows that he's the most important cog in the machine and that everything would fall apart without him. Um, but he doesn't kind of use that to make himself comfortable. He uses it to further 
the end goal. Everything is about achieving the downfall of the empire. Every bone in your body right now wants to do a Stellan Skarsgård impression and just I don't even think do the I... entire five-minute monologue. So go ahead, do a small portion of it. I burn my life to see a sunrise I know I'll never see. <laughs> Man, it was tripping out for a minute there. Like, sorry, oh, wait, sorry. No, th- sorry. That was actually that was actually him. He's here. I uh, I called him in. I was waiting for later, but uh, I'll do my impression picture, later. I don't want to embarrass myself. I just, I just picture that guy starting every interview by clearing his throat for thirty seconds. Um, so that's the top down, and they're brilliantly portrayed. Um, Gwendolyn Riley and Stellan Skarsgård are the two actors who just do an incredible job. I mean, everybody in this show, all that. Which one's Gwendolyn Riley? Is she Mon Mothma? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's kind of the top down, and that's like interesting to see all the kind of political dynamics on the rebellion side. And then um, the bottom up, you know, we have our hero, Andor, Cassian Andor, played by Diego Luna. Who very and... much starts off not a hero, which I would say is in keeping with the Star Wars tradition. Like Luke's got kind of, I think, underrated part of the original Star Wars trilogy is that Luke, kind of a bitch in the beginning. Luke's, Luke's Luke a little, really little sucks. bitch. Yeah. <laughs> It always catches me off guard how just much of a whiny teenager he is. I'm like, oh, yeah. I respect really I feel like nowadays, like, like maybe you like, I feel like the way they build somebody nowadays is like, it's just sad stuff. Like every superhero, it's like, we're going to kill everyone this person's ever known and you feel bad for them. So it doesn't matter that they already have all the tools. But no, Luke, I mean, he had bad stuff. Obviously, his parents were killed and stuff, but like, he was just kind of a whiny brat. <laughs> yeah. You're also kind of like, this kid's a little shit. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. yeah. Justice for he grows uh, up. Uncle, Uncle Ben. Or yeah, thank goodness. So, yeah, I would say Andor's very much kind of in the Han Solo tradition of, um, you know, I'm kind of a mercenary. I'm out for myself. I'm looking to make some money. Um, all of you guys, I can't trust any of you anyway. This rebellion is never going to happen. That's kind of where we find Andor for, I would say, the first half of the season. Yeah, and I think the key, one key thing is, like, the Rebellion, I think when we imagine the Rebellion, maybe this is more for, like, Star Wars fans. I think it's always shown as, like, the central portion of the story, so it's hard to imagine people not taking it seriously, but you, I think they do a good job showing that, like, everything that takes place in the central, like, Skywalker saga doesn't really have any effect or reach like anyone else in the actual universe in which they live. Like they don't even, like they barely even know what Jedi are if they do at all. It's just this totalitarian police force that's coming in and kind of ruining their lives. It's not about the force. It's not about, you know, battles of good versus evil, these coordinated units of rebels. It's just, you know, kind of standing up for yourself against occupiers essentially. Yeah, and that's how I'd say Andor's trajectory throughout the season. That's kind of how he becomes uh, radicalized isn't really the right word, but becomes like a true believer in the rebellion is um, it's not that he has, feels like there's a compelling I feel like it's less that he feels like there's a compelling idea behind freedom or democracy or any of these things that gets him to sign up for the rebellion. It's more like he is personally victimized and brutalized by this empire. 
And he's like, fuck you guys. <laughs> I'm with these guys, you know? Yeah, no, for sure. And so it's more of a reaction to authoritarianism or totalitarianism than it is to, like... I read this manifesto that one of his comrades gave him, which actually happens <laughs> in the in the show, and and he's like cognitively convinced by it. It's like no, this um, this empire kind of just tracks every moves, imprison them, but unfairly, you know. And so yeah. I think the show just does a really good job of depicting an individual's journey towards laying their life on the line for something bigger than themselves without some sort of like phony speech where I was a good person all, all along and here's proof of it because I'm going to sign up to defend the, the weak and the helpless, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it never cuts corners. I think in, in interviews with Tony Gilroy, I think they've made that a like a key point, like to never be like, okay, here's, you know, what a hero would do. It's like, no, like this person is a normal person in this situation. They're afraid what actually happened. What do they actually need to do to get from A to B? They can't just appear on another planet. They have to, you know, find a car and jack it. And it's not easy to do that. They can't just learn, you know, they don't automatically know how to hijack a car. They have to learn or they mess up or everything is in what it would actually take to get from A to B at every point. Yeah, so basically... For Andor, uh, the way we're introduced to him is he goes to a bar and he's looking for his sister. And then um, word kind of gets around that this guy is looking for somebody who's like from a distant planet. And it's a really kind of like suspicious planet that shouldn't be on their radar. It's kind of, I think, like lightly associated with the rebellion already. He just kind of stumbles into that. He gets questioned. He ends up killing the security guards because they uh, are trying to get a bribe from him, right? Yeah. And so he immediately becomes a uh, vigilante, not a vigilante, a um, a, a, a convict. Uh, what's the word for somebody on the lam? Uh, like, yeah, fugitive. So he immediately comes to Fugitive, kind of has to go underground. And um, I think that's what is brilliant about this show. Uh, when we first hear about on the Empire side, you know, basically like the local cops and the feds, they hear about, you know, a couple of security guards going down and a mysterious figure, you know, killing them. And their reaction is the, you know, like local regional sheriff. Basically, his reaction is like, uh, I don't know, dude. Maybe he's a murderer, or maybe these guys were trying to like rough him up and get right. And he was defending himself. Either way, I don't really care. I don't want like our uh crime statistics to spike because it makes us look bad. And I'm gonna hear it from my boss. So don't look into this. Just say that they like got drunk and uh you know were at the wrong place at the wrong time and kind of fell down on the job and just got hurt and get rid of the bodies like uh or even you know make a nice story out of them tell them they were helping somebody out of a situation and they got killed 
And then so the kind of regional boss who tells his uh, underlings that one of the underlings becomes kind of a character throughout the season. And he's just like, this will not stand. I must look into this crime. I will find this mysterious figure. And so he goes on a mission for the rest of the season to try to track down Andor because he killed these kind of, you know, anonymous security guard type, like thug guys who frequent the bars and harass women and take bribes, you know, dirty cops. And so um, that's, I, unlike, I don't know, it's, it's, it speaks to the quality of the show that it feels real where that regional boss would be more concerned with uh, appealing, uh, basically making his own department and his own supervisor look good rather than, you know, doing the right thing and trying to suss out crime. And then you see that just at each level. And then you realize that that's a weakness of the empire is that everybody is just trying to appease their superior and nobody's trying to do the right thing and then that gets out of hand so it becomes this just surveillance society that just breeds more and more ill will and then feeds the rebellion and it's mm. fascinating to watch yeah no absolutely i think it starts off and the first few episodes are sort of building up because you have to show what what is life like kind of before the takeover and it's sort of his fault that the empire come because of this inciting incident they go from these kind of outsourced police units basically a privatized police service which is again a very kind of deft touch looking at the ways that the empire would try to like cut costs at the edges of the universe uh to bringing in kind of actual stormtroopers and actual monikers of of the central authority yeah and i think um so it's interesting to see that kind of mirrored on the Empire side, right? Where you have somebody who's kind of like a no-name, nameless uh, detective, basically, looking into this crime. And you quickly realize, you're like, oh, this guy's a nobody. He has no power, <laughs> you know? The one who's just like zealously trying to track down Andor. And then you see it from the top down where it's like the ISB who are basically just the um, FBI of the Empire trying to you know on a very macro scale with all the budget in the world and all the staffing trying to snuff out any um semblance of a rebellion and then you see those two entities or levels like converge in the middle from the ground up and the top down in the same way that you see it happening in the rebellion and then you see that they're aware of each other and that is pretty interesting too you know yeah i mean i think What's his name again? Is it Cyril? The... Yeah, yeah, Cyril something. Yeah, his character, I think, is another kind of really interesting component of the show is that because, especially with Star Wars and superhero shows, it's it's these, you know, megalomaniacal, megalomaniacal, like good versus evil. There's always a central bad guy. I think what his character, at least for me, done a great job exposing is sort of the you know the henna and banality of evil even within something as quintessentially totalitarian as the empire right it's people on floors with nameless jobs typing into a computer but it all adds up they're all contributing little pieces to this larger system that keeps everybody oppressed and in place it's not that every person is darth vader and wants this control i mean maybe there's people who have 
good impulses and bad impulses, but everyone is just a cog in the machine. And so everyone doesn't feel like they're the ones responsible for the system itself. Yeah, and I think that the viewpoint of the people working those mindless bureaucratic jobs in the empire and those skeptical of joining the rebellion who are like pissed off the empire but still skeptical of actually doing something about it is this idea that it's too big to fail you know like look how just massive this thing is whatever impact whatever thing i could do it wouldn't have an impact anyway so like why do anything i'll just keep my head down and you know enjoy whatever latitude I have in my own life and move on, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's very realistic, right? I think um, if you look at, I mean, we can get into a talk about the best parallels to like real world rebellions at some point, I think would be interesting. But I think the conviction with which even people who really hate the empire are you know, the tepidness with which they approach sacrificing normal normalcy for armed rebellion is very high bar within the show and within real life um and so i think in too often in television people are like oh that guy got hit let's you know now we're taking up arms against the state that's just not how it works in the real world um and i think it goes to great pains to kind of show that which i think is another kind of master class from gilroy boys gilroy boys well it takes an entire season of 10 episodes for Andor to be like, I'm in. What do I And do? he has like more reason than anyone and it still takes him that whole thing. Right? Yeah, he has to be imprisoned for like three episodes. He's got to be, you know, feel like what it's like to be electrocuted. He's got... Have his family murdered. Have his, his new family murdered. murdered. Yeah, his adoptive family, yeah. And... um yeah, I mean, just kind of experience the uh, spoils, you know, or not the spoils, but like the Empire taking every advantage of everybody he cares about and every part of his life for him to go all in, right? So it's less that Andor's a hero and more that I think this beauty of the show is like maybe we would all push be pushed to that level if um we experienced what he did right yeah it's essentially so it's like, like he's rebelling because he has nothing left right this is the only yeah option. It's, it's not like we're looking at, at han solo and we see ourselves in him because we want to be him and that's cool it's like we're looking at andor and being like damn dude yeah if all that was taken from me i would probably go all in and have nothing to lose because anything would be better than letting this system that stole your family and stole your livelihood and your reputation and everything persist, you know? Yeah. Sorry, I was drinking some blue milk over here. So I uh, took <laughs> This show also just stylistically, aesthetically, it's so tactile. Everything's shot on location. Well, I don't know everything, but it feels so much shot on location. They go like to cool ass places. It there's one shot that looks like they're, I don't know, in like Switzerland or just 
a really mountainous green area and then you see a tie fighter just go through this valley and it's a really weird juxtaposition of like star wars plus really on location like incredible filmmaking um this the like major set pieces that they have in this show are blocked so well so you always like know where you are as the thing is going on and where like bad guys are and the good guys are you know and so I just think that it leads to a viewing experience that's very fluid. And the way that you learn about people's motivations develops really naturally. And for any of us who have watched shows recently that don't like develop their characters in a way that makes sense and takes time and establishes those motivations in a way that's in concert with that, it just makes you appreciate the show all the more, you know? Uh, you can just tell them you're talking about Emily in Paris. You don't have to, to be around. <laughs> Emily in Paris, season two, <laughs> in particular. Season one got it right. Um, Indeed. Yeah. I don't know. This show's also, beyond all the just heady stuff, this show's just badass. It's great. <laughs> it is. That's the thing. is, You can have, like, gritty shows. I think, like, David Simon... Um, created the wire toes this line sometimes where like the wire is obviously super entertaining and very realistic but then he has some other shows where I'm like okay this is just realistic it's not necessarily entertaining maybe it's a bad example because he's actually pretty good at this but there are many shows where I'm like okay that seemed like a documentary I believed the motivations they seem like real people but it just wasn't entertaining this is the opposite it somehow combines the spectacle of Star Wars without letting go of the very the, the realism um, that the show is to, to show on screen. Yeah, I think um, there's so much like imagination put into every part of it. I think also the level of thought and detail that goes into what would this small mining community on the fringe of the empire, like what would be their burial rites? Like, what would be their tradition, you know, when they had one of their elders of the town die? And how would that look? And let's build a whole scene around that. And it's like, oh, yeah, she died. And they're turning her into her ashes into a stone. And they place the stone in the wall where all the elders are. And there's a big ceremony around it. And that's how this community celebrates their dead. And that's the wake. And then that becomes kind of the scene of the, the big climax of the season and it brings Andor back to the one place he shouldn't go because that's his, that's his mom or his adopted mom. And so he'll be damned if he's not going to be there in person to like see this, but he knows it's dangerous. So he's staying out of the way, but he's watching, you know, and it just like the motivations all converge in a way that really makes sense and is natural and is like thought out. And, I guess if I were to sell somebody on watching the show, it's just selling somebody on somebody on watching, like watch somebody who really, really knows how to tell a story and use like TV and cinema as a vehicle for really good storytelling. Like see that writ large for 10 episodes. And meanwhile, like the music is stellar. Like the every music decision is on every, yeah. on every level is just, very well executed like just come like watch this um i don't know perfectly crafted thing it's like sitting in a perfect chair 
sitting in a perfect chair. I think that's exactly right. It's uh, it was. I mean, pretty much a perfect season of television. Every single episode. Like, there's not a single episode where I'm like, uh, we, you know, some filler, not bad, but not great. Every episode was like amazing. What was your favorite part of the whole season? Um, good question. Favorite part or like favorite episode, like scene or uh, episode. Yeah, episode. Okay, let me think. Let me pull. I need to pull up. I feel like I don't know the delineation between like the specific. Um, oh, let's see. Probably the the uh, the first. Oh man, it's tough. The original heist, maybe, just because the ending was so cinematic. Maybe. Oh yeah, that was cool. I mean, for me, it's got to be the prison break. Uh, Prison Break was also awesome. It's tough to say because then I'm like, okay, but some of my favorite speeches were in episodes that weren't like a climactic event either, you know? But You're a big speech guy. You love a good movie. I, the thing is, speeches are really hit or miss. People love to lean on speeches. You nail a speech, there's nearly nothing like it. Yeah. Real, like Marvel these days, they have a lot of speeches, but like very few memorable speeches that actually mean anything. This show has like five speeches where I'm like, that is fucking badass. Like, holy crap. I want to repeat it right now in my Stone Scar God voice. The Prison Break episode has two speeches that are like, would be the best speech in any Marvel movie in the same episode, like 45 minutes. The Prison Break episode has the Stellan speech, right? Yeah, that might put it over the top just because it's 100% it's the best episode then. It's, it's just tough to argue with that because of that speech. And it has Lonnie, who's the man. <laughs> Lonnie's the golem? No. Uh, oh, no, Lonnie's, Lonnie's, the, Lonnie's the inside inside guy, yeah. The little mustache. Yeah. He's the man. I yeah. just... Um, I I think... As we're... As we're... Uh, bringing this... Uh, plane into landing that Stellan speech so for those who haven't seen it which is go watch it right now on youtube even if if you haven't seen the show uh luthan he's the he's the puppet master on the rebellion side he's the one making everything happen you know uh getting funding from the uh, what, did, what did Oliver think? Because I know Oliver might actually listen to this. Did what did Oliver think of this? Uh, I don't think he's watched it yet. Oh my god! Okay, continue. <laughs> and uh, so he's, you know, and then he's working on the ground. He was the one who hired Andor, who kind of like sought him out, and then he was the one who wanted to kill Andor because, you know, no loose ends kind of thing. You know, Andor yeah. could identify him, and that puts everything at risk if Andor gets caught and interrogated. So, anyways, complicated figure. Um, he's also cultivated this spy within the Empire named Lonnie, and they've been feeding Lonnie information. And so Lonnie like re- looks really good at his job because Lonnie has this insider intel from the rebellion, be like, "Oh, we should go look over here and like snuff out this part." And then those actually were rebels, but those were um, rebels that uh, Luthen, you know the center of the web was willing to give up 
to cultivate Lonnie as a trusted source within the empire so that they could get even better information so they could get like the whole architecture. It's like really brilliant. I feel like it's like the, the classic um, enigma dilemma in World War II, right? When the British yeah, totally. cracked, cracked the enigma. Yeah. It's like how, um, how many Jenna people are we going to let die before so that the Nazis don't know that we had cracked their code. Well, the, the calculation was essentially like, we need to be, how, what is the most number of people we can save and how sporadically do we have to do it so that we can t- continue to use this without like the Nazis figuring out that we have it? Like how much can we convince the Germans that it's luck? Yeah. At what point, if we just save everybody, they all obviously know, but if we save nobody, we're saving nobody. So you have to find the balance in the middle game uh, you know, in between where you save enough people to continue to use it to make it worth it without giving it up, which is, yeah, yeah, the type of math you do in war. Like they Talk say about the utilitarianism. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyways, Luthen has to confront Lonnie because Lonnie's like, bro, I'm out. I got a kid now. Uh, I can't do this high stakes spying anymore. I have to live this double life. It's too much pressure. I'm sorry. Get your shit together, Lonnie. I'm out of here. (laughs) And Stellan Skarsgård, you know, meets him on this precarious ledge down 50 elevator flights in this circuitous hallway. And uh, he's like, sorry, Lonnie, you're not out. (laughs) Nice try, Lonnie. He's like, I've been watching you, Lonnie. Congratulations on your newborn baby. I would, I would, he basically implying I would hate for him not to have a father. I would hate for something bad to happen to him. Basically like threatening his child to him in front of him, right? Being uh, kind of a, kind of a evil dude, you know? You have to use the tools of your enemies. But you have to use the tools of your enemies to, I don't know, I can't do the sound voice. And I just thought no, that was it. Keep it going. <laughs> I, so then basically Lonnie says, like, look at everything I'm having to sacrifice, leaving this double life, you know, living in fear every day, going to work. What are you sacrificing? And then that sets Luthen on one of the Son greatest of monologues bitch. of all time. Because <laughs> he just describes in the most itemized and articulate way how he has sacrificed everything. everything. It's great. Yeah. I agree. I was like, what if I sacrificed? Not Love? Lonnie. <laughs> like, He's like, you think he was just like, corny. oh, Lonnie, Lonnie, Lonnie. You said... <laughs> oh, yeah. if you only knew. No. I love it because there's so... The people leading this rebellion, there are these critical points where people who work for them or with them question their own loyalty and question their own sacrifice Mm -hmm. and every time they do it's like motherfucker you're asking me and then they have prepared the most eviscerating (laughs) eviscerating response you want to step to me (laughs) so good i don't know the show has everything like uh whatever you want in a show this has it. So right before we finish, I think we're probably getting close to people's. Uh, if we haven't passed it, people's. There's uh, no willingness there's to zero talk. chance. 
The only person still listening is my mom. Oh, that's awesome. Hi, Eddie's mom. How are you doing? Good to, good to have you here. Um, I was going to say, what, what rebellion do you think this, like, what does it remind you of if you had to make like a real world parallel to the rebellion that's depicted on screen? Do you have one in mind? Because I'm like... Well, I was... So the thing that it reminds me of is not necessarily a single rebellion, but there's a big debate kind of in, in academia well, as to whether... I'll say, I'll say mine. Okay. And then you can say... Uh, it just makes me think of Rome. I just feel like Rome, if you were somebody who was disgruntled within the Roman Empire, um, I don't know, if you were... If you're an Israelite under this huge empire 2000 years ago in the time of jesus you'd probably be like this isn't great but uh <laughs> not I a want, big fan <laughs> like i want independence i want you know they're they're kind of tolerant of my religion but they're not as much as we would be if we were dependent i don't like being under this i don't like being under caesar i, I want out i'm not down and uh i mean it's not that there was a rebellion of that sort, but just that feeling of Rome being too big to fail, of it being everywhere, of can't like never having been to a place that wasn't under Roman occupation. That to me is kind of what it reminds me of or what I think of, you know? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good one. Um, Sorry, where were you? No, that's a good one. I was going to say, I don't, I'm not picturing like a single rebellion in terms of like the circumstance, but more, a, a like the armed wing of many rebellions. So there's this debate in academia of like whether nonviolent rebellion or violent rebellion works better at kind of gaining achievable kind of democratization gains. Um, and a lot of it, I, I mean, it's a really tough question. So you're using it across multiple contexts and it's really difficult. But I've always thought that the evidence suggests that the most successful versions of these rebellions are the ones that have both. Where you have the kind of hardline armed wing that everyone kind of agrees is too, going too far, but you, the people who are, you know, the middle ground, the ones who are the peacemakers say, you know, we don't want to give into this far right wing, but you know, they're around and you need to compromise. Otherwise, this is what's coming for you. Um, oh, so, I see. Yeah, having the leverage of exactly. violence, even if you're not perpetrating the violence. Yeah, so it, it reminds me of like, you know, sort of like the Black Panthers or like Mhontu Wesizwe, which is like the armed wing of the um, African National Congress in South Africa. Um, lots of groups that are willing to go the extra mile because they see it as, you know, life or death or, you know, liberty or death um, that really end up contributing a lot to these you know immortal struggles of somewhat good and evil and in many cases as close as you can get to kind of hollywood style uh, good and evil um so that's what that's what it reminds me most of is that a lot of these groups are not seen super kindly even in historical terms uh, because of some of the atrocities they've committed um and i don't think you're supposed i don't think the Gilroys think like want us to see the rebellion as you know, angelic, perfect, or as saints. And I think that's something that is really kind of anti-canonical in the Star Wars sense, but it's very true in a kind of real world sense. Anyhow.
thanks for listening. Happy uh, Andoring. Andoring, people. Until next time. Rational listeners out. Later.